welcome to the Research Culture Uncovered podcast, where in every episode we explore what is research culture and what should it be. You'll hear thoughts and opinions from a range of contributors to help you change research culture into what you want it to be. Hi, this is Jed Hall. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm an academic development consultant at the University of Leeds. You are joining us in Season 5 of our Research Culture Uncovered podcast, where we're diving into the effects of research impact on research culture and focusing in on different topics to ensure those effects are positive. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Professor Ilias Trispiotis. Ilias is Professor in Human Rights Law from the School of Law here in Leeds. He is an expert in international, European and comparative human rights law, discrimination law, human rights and discrimination theory, law and religion. He's also the school's co-lead for impact and engagement. In the summer of 2022, Ilias won the Making a Positive Difference to Society category in the university's first Engage for Impact Awards for his submission entitled Banning LGBTIQ plus conversion therapy, engaging with policymakers and LGBTIQ plus organisations to change UK law. Welcome, Ilias, to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You're welcome, and and thank you for thank you for saying um, yes to the to the invitation. It's always great. To, it's always great to uh, to speak to people in uh, and get and get some really interesting conversations going. Uh, now, before we dive in to talk about your submission to the to the Engage for Impact Awards last uh, last year, um, a little bird told me that. Um, you're in training for the Leeds 10K race. <laughs> now, being, being um, how can I describe it? A complaining runner, I think, is probably the, the best way of describing it. It's not something I enjoy. But why, why on earth are you putting yourself through the pain, as I see it, of, <laughs> of racing in, in Leeds soon? That's a great question, Jed. I, I really like running. I I don't find it very very painful. Well, it depends on how on how, how the terrain is. Um but um I started running again like many people during the pandemic. Um and I find the repetitiveness of, of running um quite calming. Um and there is this this sense of you know gratification after after a long run, who is not partial to a runner's high? Um, but it's also very fitting, I suppose, first question, because as 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 we've discussed, I usually listen to podcasts yeah. when when I run. So I find myself for the first time on the other side of this. Um, so so yeah, maybe you should try it a bit more. Okay, I will, and and hopefully you've got some episodes from this podcast lined up for some of your training runs. Yes, I have bookmarked a few. It's a great series. <laughs> Brilliant, that's um, that's fantastic. And and the other thing, um, I guess, considering that Leeds our deputy vice chancellor is an ultra marathon runner, I guess it's part of just how to progress as a researcher at Leeds is to is to run a lot, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Leeds is quite competitive uh, in in running. <laughs> yeah, um, 
so thinking about the um the 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 submission to the to the awards first of all first question i wonder if you could uh, tell us some more about what conversion therapy actually is and and uh, and and do you think we're heading towards uh, a change in uk law yeah so conversion therapy uh, is an umbrella term uh, for any um, quote unquote therapeutic approach um, that demonstrates an assumption that um, any sexual orientation or gender identity is inherently preferable to any other, um, and which attempts to change someone's gender identity or sexual orientation or to, to suppress it on that basis, on the basis that it's inherently inferior to, mm. to, to, to others. And typically, it, um, it is targeting LGBTIQ plus identities for suppression or, or for change. Now, the UK government, and I've worked a lot with the UK uh, Government Equalities Office and other UK NGOs for this project. The UK government, they have promised to ban conversion therapy in law uh, multiple times. Um, a ban on conversion therapy was part of the Queen's speech uh, in 2019, then again in 2020. Uh, uh, and um, it's it's expected that it's going to be part of the King's speech, of the upcoming King's speech. Um, but conversion therapy has not been banned yet. Um, and God knows when the government will, will ban it. Um, many other countries uh, across the Council of Europe um, and across the world, really, with Canada... Uh, being France, being some of the latest examples, have banned conversion therapy in law. The United Nations uh, has recommended to the United Kingdom and to all countries to ban it in law. It's a practice that I think there is incontrovertible evidence that causes grave harm to anyone that goes through it. And also there is incontrovertible evidence that it doesn't work it's also useless mm. um, so that's why there is advice from most international organizations um, and NGOs to introduce a legal ban to it yeah thank you for that that's um, it's really useful and, and, and a very very serious topic I mean the um, the award category you submitted to was making a positive uh, difference to society, which was uh, very much around both um, improvements and preventing harm to to groups within society. So, so that is that. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess that's the the hook for you. Why you went for that that particular category was that prevention of harm. Was it? Yes, I think that banning conversion therapy in law is a very important first step to protect LGBT plus communities and um, survivors of those practices from further harm. So yeah, I think that's that's a great way of, of putting it. Yeah. You, you mentioned working with um, a whole range of, uh, of NGOs uh, and also 
in your in your submission you mentioned working both in the uk and in new zealand and and further on in the um in the series uh, we actually speak to somebody in uh, higher education in new zealand so i also wanted to kind of make some links there and um but uh, were there any kind of key points that came from that that you'd like to share you know some of the some of the really interesting things or kind of difficulties in that space in terms of working with a whole range of different groups yeah i think i think that's a really that's a really good question um i i met with the un independent expert on sexual orientation and gender identity in london um a couple of weeks ago uh, as part of his official visit in the uk and that meeting i think epitomized some of the um some of the most enjoyable aspects if you want of working with with policymakers um and i think that one of the most enjoyable aspects of working with policymakers is that you can see um, how academic research can translate to specific action points and could make a difference, at least conceptually, in how policymakers understand, for instance, what conversion therapy is, why conversion therapy is a legal problem, um, and what the legal solutions to it can be. But it's also it also has to do with instrumental change. So trying to convince key policymakers uh, to actually affect the change in law. And I think that's that's quite enjoyable, quite gratifying mm. uh, for 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 an academic researcher. Um, but as you say, I've met with um, a few NGOs um, in the UK and internationally, um, you know, with the Equalities Minister of the UK. In, on two occasions, I've spoken with the UK uh, Government Equalities Office. Uh, in many occasions, um, and one of the I think and there are many similarities and differences in in uh, by but if you compare those conversations to typical academic conversations you, you might have with other academics um, and there are many similarities in the sense that policymakers I have in mind the NGOs I have in mind like academics they they are their thinking is very much evidence based so they the focus in those meetings is on you know the rigor of the arguments the, the rigor of the legal arguments uh, you know the quality of the research that backs those arguments so for example um i had in in, in all those in, in many of those meetings in most of those meetings we had to go through you know lots of counterfactuals that academic papers very often have to go through uh you know to to strengthen an argument that we had to go through counterfactuals like would banning a conversion therapy mean that we're banning that we have to ban all hate speech for example why is conversion therapy uh, different to hate speech and so on and so forth and uh, and that's and that's very that's a similarity to to academic research in an academic paper uh, but there's also you know huge differences, and the first I think the first difference that one identifies quite quickly 
is that policymakers um, are very much results-driven, uh, more results-driven than academic research. Academic research sometimes focuses on you know, theoretical or, or, or descriptive questions uh, or in the processes or methodologies of research instead you know, of specific outcomes. Uh, or solutions, um, and policymakers are interested in. So what is the right answer? In a few words, what should we do here? What would be the problem if we don't do that? What would be the problem if we do do that? Mm -hmm. And and this very much results-oriented approach, I think, differentiates uh, policymakers mm -hmm. um, from academic researchers in another in another way as well, not just because it's very much results oriented, but because uh, policymakers they need straightforward answers, free of jargon as much as possible. Um, so, working with them throughout the project, I had to distill all the research evidence that we have on on conversion therapy and in favor of a legal ban on conversion therapy to key messages, uh, bullet points um, to fit. Their, their need for very specific straightforward answers, which they can share with, you know, with MPs um, and with, with, with uh, lawmaking, uh, more generally processes, uh, people with short attention spans and not much time in their hands. Mm. So this was a very, very important lesson for me, learning how to turn academic research into you know, key bullet points um, summarize those, translate those for a different audience if you want. Yeah, sure. So um, I guess in a sense what you're saying is that they're probably very impact-oriented. You know, results uh, impact is about the specific change and or, or effect that we're, that we're looking for. So, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess they're, you know, they, we could frame them in that way. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of framing that. Yeah. Mm. So maybe that's you know that's where the where the two worlds overlap is is in that uh, is in that a, a desire for that change, whatever that whatever that change is. Um, and I guess this is this is very much uh, personal values driven as well for you. Is that? Yeah, I am. I'm committed to. Uh, equality, LGBT mm. equality, um, and human rights. This is this is my um, area of expertise, but also I think reflects my personal values and my academic values. Mm. Um, so yeah, there is there is something personal to this to this project uh, for me, and I have and I've realized that as well working with. Um, NGOs, uh, meeting survivors of conversion therapy, how important this project, how important introducing a legal ban to those practices is um, for so many people. Um, and it's very humbling. Mm, yes. Yeah, it's, it's often said that policymakers can react to those personal stories much more you know, much more understandably and potentially favorably to the to the policy change you're you're looking for as a researcher. Did you did you find that that they they were interested both in the 
um, in the kind of personal stories as well as in those counterfactuals you were talking about that are more, I guess, theoretically uh, driven those arguments? Absolutely. Uh, the personal stories in this project, at least, but more generally, um, have huge power for policymakers. Uh, they can relate some of the legal problems, for example, that conversion therapy poses to um, specific communities, specific faces and stories. Um, and this is very important for mobilization. Um, and we've seen in the UK, at least, MPs coming from very different political backgrounds, uh, being united in their willingness to ban this after listening to survivors, after being exposed to true stories of people in the UK who've gone through, who've been through those those practices uh, very recently, some of them, and hearing um, what, how they felt, uh, how, how that happened to them. Uh, why did they choose to go through this? And that has been extremely powerful. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you mentioned that. Uh, just interested in that uh, kind of coalition for change, which may be people from all different parts of the political spectrum and lots of different organisations. As I said, I think you mentioned that you'd worked with over seventy different organisations, um, potentially representing different parts of uh, of the various communities that uh, that that could be. It could be affected by um, by conversion therapy. So, so, in terms of that kind of coalition building, what did you find helped with that process, and 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 what did you find challenging about it? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I'm I'm, I'm a member in the Ban Conversion Therapy Coalition, which is a coalition of um, more than seventy NGOs uh, in in the UK. Uh, in favor of banning conversion therapy. And I think I'm the only academic member in this in this coalition. Um, I joined that coalition very, very early on. Um, and as you say, it's it's a very uh, broad coalition with NGOs representing very different parts of the LGBT plus community. Um, and the glue here, if you want, is this shared goal. Um, the, sh the shared goal to ban conversion therapy and challenge those who believe that either it doesn't happen uh, in the UK or uh, that there have to be some, some exemptions to it. Um, there, it is. It was eye-opening for me as an academic to be part of a coalition of NGOs, such a broad coalition of, of NGOs. And I've learned a lot, especially with regards to what we were discussing just a moment ago, the importance of personal stories, uh, engaging with survivors. I knew that was important in this legal project, but the way you do this most in the, you know, inclusively, sensitively, um, the way NGOs have chosen to share 
those those voices, the timing. Uh, so all those this those the, 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 this campaigning aspect uh, of of the coalition was eye opening to me, and it goes back to what we were talking about: imp- what impact means, how to achieve it instrumentally in the most effective way, um, not through instrumentalizing people, but through knowing who the od- who the audience is. Um, and you know, using personal stories, you know, very sensitively uh, in this context. All this was something that um, I've learned a lot about in the in the coalition. Um, and yeah, I was lucky. I was lucky because Jane Ozan, uh, who is a, a very well known um, uh, lesbian activist, uh, a survivor of conversion therapy herself. Um, um, and um, a very influential campaigner in this in this area invited me to join the coalition quite early on. So I saw also the coalition, you know, being built in the past in the past couple of years. Um, yeah, that's yeah. A, a very a very very um, useful experience. Mm. And and was there anything challenging about it? Did you feel maybe stretched by those different, um, you know, maybe different thinking about this subject, even if there was a, a glue that held those 70 organisations? Were there any, was there any kind of um, disagreements that you kind of had to navigate or you were at the centre of it? Potentially, in terms of trying to hold the coalition together, I, I, it was definitely a steep learning curve for me, um, and we were talking before about the differences between academic research um, and working with policymakers, but working with campaigners and many of those NGOs, um, they do have very, you know, uh, rightly, uh, they do have a focus on campaigning um, and mobilizing people uh, for, for the cause is, is is also a different way of thinking and a different way of presenting academic research. So, yeah, there were, there were times that, especially earlier on in the coalition, that I had to present findings of my legal research on conversion therapy. And I and I and I and I learned that how how to um, translate those for for that audience, um, which was a challenge at the time, um, but I think it was a very useful lesson for me. And mm. um, there were the, the as I said, because there is a shared goal behind the coalition. There is cohesion in the messages coming from the coalition. And although different NGOs represent different parts of the LGBT community, I think there is a, there is an overall agreement that those practices have to be legally banned in the UK. And that's a very useful, um, you know, uh, glue, mm. let's say, in this, in this group. Yeah. So uh, research is in lots of different disciplines and uh, and different research areas uh 
nearly always, uh, it almost doesn't matter what, what area actually, nearly always have to go through some um, some policy angles. And a lot of them, uh, a lot of them worry about kind of reaching out into that space and, and you know, maybe worry about um, negative reactions to the research or getting no reaction to the research, you know, to the research, you know, that the um, policy community doesn't, doesn't take it up um is there anything you can say to to try and help um researchers new to that new to that process kind of um be confident and and courageous and 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 go ahead and do it is there anything you can give them in terms of tips that that might help or ways to think about the process you you said it, Jed. Uh, be be confident and courageous, and go out and meet with people early on. Is one of my first pieces of advice um, from my from my position as co lead for impact in the law school. So I did. It was I met with uh, with Jane Ozan, um, the activist I mentioned earlier on, quite early on in the project, uh, and it's it was. Our meeting was eye-opening. Uh, she said that the UK government are planning um, a, an inquiry um, on, on this. Those are the questions that NGOs are interested in. This is the coalition. You might want to join this, etc. And she was what we call sometimes in, the, in our academic impact language, she proved to be a gatekeeper. Jane. Um, so that was that was a very um, key moment in in how the project ended up shaping up. Sometimes we academics think that oh, I've written a great article, a fantastic article, a fantastic book. Uh, people are going to come to me and say to me, "Oh, this is fantastic. We want this." We want to use this in our work, but that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. I'm afraid it happens sometimes, occasionally, but it doesn't. It doesn't happen. That's not how the way the way impact projects, you know, shape up. It's it's important to reach out to um, external stakeholders you think would be interested in your work, and almost co-produce the key questions of your project early on. So this mm-hmm. is what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, is that inter- is it of any interest to you? Which questions uh, in this area are you most concerned with? Um, and then you know produce something that combines both those elements. So have those external stakeholders as you know to on some level partners in your project from early on. I think this is this is my my the important tip here. Mm-hmm. Um, but you might. You know, someone might be thinking, yeah, how do you know? How do you know who are the gatekeepers? How do you know who to contact? Um, and and I think that, you know, it's important to arrange scoping meetings with people early on. Some of them will be fruitful. Others might not be as useful. Um, but, yeah, it's important to go out. And there is there is support uh, in the law school Um for, for people to to do that um uh, yeah it's 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 important to 
try and start co-producing key questions with important external stakeholders from early on. That's my main tip to people. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, we have a couple of uh, episodes in in later on in the season looking at uh, at co production. And I know our social sciences institute, uh, which covers uh, a range of uh, a range of faculties at, at Leeds, has done a lot of work in that space to try and uh, exemplify really good co production practices. So yeah, look mm. out for that. We've got a we've got an interview about that. Brilliant. Um, yeah yeah it's it's really interesting it's it's already recorded so i i kind of know what's in it but uh, <laughs> but i don't want to give too much away in this uh but you know look out for that it's coming along uh later in the season um the the interesting thing for me so i've also got somebody from as i said somebody from new zealand coming up and uh, and you mentioned uh that you'd also worked with policymakers in that country um now the person from New Zealand said to me in her interview that uh, because it's a smaller place, the degrees of separation from you to the prime minister um, are smaller <laughs> than uh, right. than it, that it may feel like in the UK. So, what what was your experience of working with the different policy communities in the two countries? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Jed. I was invited by the Justice Committee of the New Zealand. Parliament to give evidence on the ban on conversion therapy that they were discussing there in New Zealand. There are many similarities in the way that policymakers in New Zealand think uh, the type of evidence they're most interested in. But there were some key um, differences, some some very some, some key interesting differences that 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 uh, that that spring to mind. Um, Firstly, um, when the Justice Committee published uh, the call for evidence on conversion therapy, uh, and I submitted evidence uh, in that in that call, there was uh, a tick box that anybody could could tick if they wanted to appear in front of the committee. So that was really interesting because um, the committee did invite specific experts, and you know, I was one of them. But then many people from all backgrounds appeared in front of the committee uh, to discuss their experience, their views about conversion therapy. Um, so um, not experts, but everyday people, uh, but also people from NGOs, activists and religious people. Uh, so a very, very broad range of individuals um, came before the committee uh, to discuss their views about the ban. And that was really interesting because, of course, it gave the Justice Committee a much broader overview compared to the um, to the UK Parliament, to the Women and Equalities Committee here, which invited just six people. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe it has to do as well with the fact that New Zealand is a much smaller country, as, 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 as you were saying. Um, the other... The other, the other element that I found really interesting um, is that there was a significant um, focus on indigenous people. Mm. Uh, there was sensitivity towards the experience of indigenous people with conversion therapy. Um, and 
that sensitivity to it is again, uh, I think, characteristic uh, of of New Zealand. Um, but it also showed this additional layer of sensitivity uh, in the discussion that I hadn't uh, really come across in other countries I've worked I've worked in uh, for this for this project. Mm, that's really interesting um, because. Yeah, there's been a lot of work within the committee structure in the UK Parliament to kind of try and diversify kind of who provides evidence. Um, and I think that's starting starting to be kind of more successful in the kind of written forms of evidence, you know, where you, where you put stuff in at, at the beginning of the process. But here in the UK, it seems to be that often it's a, it's a kind of selection from that submitted evidence where they go a bit deeper in the oral session so it's interesting that that you picked out that even the oral sessions seem to be quite um diverse and cover a lot of uh cover a lot of communities in in that experience in in new zealand maybe that's that's something that uh that our committee structures uh in the uk parliament should should look at Ilias, so um, since uh, since winning um, the award last summer, you've you've been promoted. So um, I was just really interested in terms of, you know, how much you talked about the impact side of your work within your promotion application for your uh, for your uh, in in terms of applying to be a professor. Yeah, thanks, Jed. I did I did talk a little bit about my impact work in my promotion application I think that it did play some role but um, and I think and I think that's that's a that's a welcome change in the culture of academic research um, it's it is important to publish excellent articles excellent papers and my impact work does include those um, but I think it's important to look outside academia um, to um, the policymakers, to the NGOs, uh, to um, the stakeholders and actors um, that at least in law um, could um, uh, benefit from your research to affect positive change. Um, and the, the fact that the university and perhaps universities across the UK are looking for that type of work, um, much in in a in a much more um, supportive way, perhaps. In in recent years, I think is a positive change. Um, so yeah, of course, I was very passionate about my impact work. So it's so it's it it is in my it's in my promotional application and I'm very proud of including it there. Uh, but through writing the the application and discussing it with colleagues and the dean, I've realised that there is this very very supportive um, uh, environment for impact projects, uh, which I think is very positive. Great. Uh, it's great to hear that um, and that uh, 
uh, and that the panels that receive the applications and then and then conduct the interviews are kind of really really interested in hearing that work so thank you for thank you for sharing that um so Elias, um, unfortunately our time is is almost up and uh, is there any kind of final words you'd want to you'd want to say in terms of kind of final piece of advice that maybe my questions haven't haven't unearthed I just I just want to say thank you uh Jed for putting this this podcast together I think it's very important for researchers uh around the world to um to hear about um uh impact demystify, demystify what it means um and 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 it's a great opportunity uh through this series for people to reflect on their work um and how it can be used uh to reach uh, others outside academia um so congratulations on the podcast <laughs> thank you thank you i'm really hoping uh, really hoping the listening listener figures go up as a result so that'd be great um thank you very much for your time this morning and and uh, if you'd like to say bye to our listeners well i'll let you go off to whatever's next bye everyone thank you jed thanks Elias. thanks for listening to the research culture uncovered podcast please subscribe so you never miss out on our brand new episodes. And if you're enjoying the discussions, give us some love by dropping a five-star rating and written review as it helps other research culturists find us. And please share with a friend and show them how to subscribe. Thanks for listening, and here's to you and your research culture.